Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Sometimes life can be so monotonous Every day seems to replay the one Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. This week, we're covering the topic called No Man Father. I mean, where do you, where do we Catholics get off going against Jesus in the plain words in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23? Call no man on earth your father, for you have but one father who is in heaven. I mean, where do we do that? I mean, isn't that unbiblical? Well, we're going to find out today. Not only is it biblical, but it's beautiful. That intro song is I Want More by Dave Reggetts. You can find a link to Dave's website and as well as the show notes for today's episode on my website at www.catholichack.com. Before we begin and say our opening prayer, I just wanted to say a really quick thank you to the organizers of the John Paul II Film Festival out in Miami, Florida, who invited me out this week to give a short presentation on uh, a sort of a combination of shame and continence from John Paul II's Love and Responsibility, as well as my sort of conversion and uh, testimony on a, on a conversion from a life in pornography and sexual license and how God saved me from that. And so I combined those two talks in a very sort of condensed fashion, and you can find a link to that and view the video of uh, Father Stan Fortuna playing at that, at that festival that opening night. It was a great time. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I can't wait to go back. So you can stop by www.catholichack.com to find all of that. Well, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory and praise and honor be to you, Almighty God, as again we come before you to study your word, to soak in it. We pray that you'll send forth your Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, that we might know the truth. And the truth 
is a person, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May we come to know him deeper, more rich, and fuller every single day. We ask for this this grace, this charism, Lord. We pray for the church. We pray for the vicar of Christ on earth, who you have set up to guide your church. We pray that Pope Benedict XVI is given the graces he needs to shepherd the flock, along with all the bishops, the priests, the deacons, that they may proclaim this truth to all the world. We pray for the conversion of sinners and the unification of all the believers in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We ask Our Lady's intercession for us as we sojourn on earth, awaiting for that day where we are unified with God and her and the saints forever and ever. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, call no man father. That's the topic. If you've ever had run-ins with non-Catholics out in the world, in the workplace, or at a restaurant, or a convenience store, this tends to come up a lot. I mean, you priests, you call your priest father in the Catholic Church. Yet, Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 9, quote, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven, unquote. I mean, did Jesus really mean that we can't call anybody father? I mean, especially, or not only our priests, but what about our own earthly dads? I mean, I call my dad father, don't you? Well, what about rabbis? I mean, if we were to back up one verse in Matthew 23 to verse 8, we would read, quote, But you are not to be called rabbi or teacher, for you have one teacher, and you are all brethren, unquote. So it seems to suggest that he forbids even calling people teacher. Does he really mean that? We can't call anybody teacher. We can't call anybody father. Well, do Protestants, people who think that the the Catholic Church is untrue, don't they have teachers? I went to Sunday school and I had a Sunday school teacher when I was growing up in the Church of Christ. So that's a great question. Are we not to call anybody teacher? Didn't our Lord say in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, starting in verse 18, quote, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone, unquote. Now notice, not only does he now seem to suggest forbidding the calling of anybody good, but notice he never, he never even rebuked this ruler for calling him teacher. Yet it was our Lord himself who said in Matthew 23, verse 8, call nobody teacher. Yet he doesn't rebuke him for calling him teacher. So I can kind of let it slide because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and therefore God. And so I guess he kind of qualifies against his own words in Matthew 23, 8. But are we now not to uh, are we to understand that we can't seriously call anybody other than God Father? Well, let's take a look around Scripture. Let's dive deep here and find out if this is true. Does Jesus truly mean this? What does what does Jesus say in other verses, and what do the apostles say in other verses? Do they do they understand Jesus to mean strictly that you can't call anybody on earth Father, or do they think maybe? 
He means this in a more symbolic way, a more figurative way. Let's start with Jesus himself. How about John chapter 8, verse 56? Quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, last time I checked, Abraham was not the second person of the Blessed Trinity and therefore uh, not qualifying to be called God in any shape or form. Yes, he had a great faith, but nobody believes he was God. So why is Jesus calling him Father? Didn't Jesus know that he himself said in Matthew 23, 9, call no man on earth Father? I think he did. I mean, it was his words after all. And so Jesus seems to suggest by calling Abraham Father that he didn't mean it strictly. Well, let's keep looking. Let's just keep digging. How about St. Stephen? In Acts chapter 7, verse 2, quote, And Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, unquote. Now, in this verse, St. Stephen not only calls Abraham father like Jesus did, but he goes a step further. He calls those present, the Pharisees, the priests, the clergy, the scribes, he calls them fathers, the very people who would put him to death. He calls them fathers. Didn't St. Stephen know that Jesus forbid this in Matthew 23, 9? I mean, wasn't he a follower, a believer? I would say he was a follower, a believer, the very first martyr. He begged, like Jesus did from the cross, St. Stephen begged God to forgive them as they were murdering him. And so I'd say he's pretty much a believer, and one we should all emulate in faith. And yet he seems to understand Jesus' words in a different light, other than the strict sense. Let's look at St. Paul. You know, that guy who was knocked off his proverbial horse on the road to Damascus, seeing the bright light, the vision of Jesus Christ himself, which blinded him, where Jesus calls him out from the Pharisees, converting him, this famous conversion story we read in the book of Acts, making him an apostle. St. Paul goes on to verify what he received directly from Jesus with St. Peter and the other apostles. And so we have some affirmation from the, the, the chief steward in the kingdom of Jesus, St. Peter himself, that St. Paul's ministry was from Christ. And so he would have been very familiar with the teaching of our Lord. St. Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, as he likes to call himself. What does he, how does he understand our Lord's words? Oh, well, we see, for instance, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22, that he seems to think that he is a father to Timothy. Quote, but Timothy's worth you know, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Well, come on, St. Paul. I mean, you of all people should know that you call no man on earth father but your father in heaven, right? Well, what about Onesimus? In Philemon 10, St. Paul says, quote, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment, unquote. Wow. St. Paul, like St. Stephen and kind of like Jesus himself calling Abraham father, seems to think that Jesus didn't mean that literally. He might have had another intention behind it when he made that proclamation in Matthew 23, 9. Well, let's look at somebody else. How about St. John? 
St. John, for instance, in 1 John chapter 2 and 13 and following, uh, seems to call the elders fathers. Quote, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Unquote. Wow. Now, St. John adds himself to the list of folks, apostles, who seem to understand our Lord's words in Matthew 23 differently than the strict literal sense. Even St. Peter in 1 Peter 5.13 calls St. Mark his son, suggesting that, therefore, he is his father. And as we know from tradition, that the Gospel of Mark is pretty much just the the, the account written by St. Mark of St. Peter's teaching. So it's really almost a gospel of St. Peter written through the hand of St. Mark, his father. <laughs> well, let's dive a little deeper. Uh, recently, I read a book called Many Are Called by Dr. Scott Hahn. It's a phenomenal read. It's a meditation on the priesthood uh, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Catholic Church, and I highly recommend it. It's just, it's easy to read. It's, it's very deep. It's, it's uh, meditative. That's a good way to put it. And he brings up a couple of points when he's talking about the fatherhood of the priesthood. He dives really deep into the Old Testament. And that's where I want to go now. And if we, we start back with Adam, and we've done this many times on this show, so I won't go into great detail, but I would recommend that you can search previous episodes and you can see how we have gone and spent a lot of time looking at, at Adam as the first priest, as the first king and the father to the human race. He's, his, uh, his soul is breathed in him from God himself. He's set up in the image and likeness of God. He is given dominion over the creatures, right? That's a very, that's uh, like a kingly role. He is given the, the specific task to Abu Da and Shamar in the, the garden sanctuary to keep and protect it. The same words were used to describe what the duty for the Levitical priesthood was in the tabernacle in the wilderness and the Levitical priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the Levitical priesthood saw themselves as like new Adams because they saw Adam to be a priest ministering in the garden sanctuary. Instead of offering up the sacrifice of bulls and goats, he offered the sacrifice of himself. But in disobedience, he fell from grace because God and his love and wisdom gave the ultimate uh, guarantee of human freedom, the, gar the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam was commanded not to eat it, to be obedient to God. But instead, out of cowardice, he allowed the bully, the snake, to come into the garden sanctuary and threaten them physically, and like a coward, he stood silent, allowing his bride to do all the negotiating with this beast. Adam, whose job it was to be the priest, to protect himself, to offer up himself as the sacrifice in protection of his spouse and the garden, fails in his duty. And Dr. Hahn, on page 44 of Many Are Called, says, quote, After Adam's failure, we find men exercising their priesthood in more ritualized and arduous ways, del uh, deliberately offering to God a portion of the fruits of their labor. 
Since they were now expelled from the garden sanctuary, they had to build their own holy places. They needed to carry out physically and enact symbolically what Adam had failed to do spiritually, to offer service and to guard the sanctuary against danger and defilement. That was the primary work of the fathers throughout the period to which they gave their name the patriarchal period, that is, the time of the fathers. As fathers, they were priests. They were mediators and ministers of sacrifice, custodians of the covenant with God. By means of their blessing, they passed their priesthood on to their firstborn sons." Dr. Hahn goes on to show that it was this priesthood of the firstborn sons. We see it through Noah and his sons. We see it through through uh, Abraham and his son Isaac and Isaac's sons. So we see this firstborn son uh, priesthood being passed down through the fathers, down to Moses, and then he consecrates Aaron and his sons. And then all of a sudden we come to Mount Sinai. There at the foot of this mountain. When Moses was up on top of the mountain in communion with God, like a new a garden sanctuary up there, in communion with God, receiving the very law written by the finger of God on stone, what happens but the people rebel against Aaron, forcing Aaron, or not forcing him, they didn't twist his arm too badly, like Adam was a coward, so Aaron was a coward. And like the bully that entered the garden sanctuary in Genesis chapter 3, and so we see the bully through the people rebelling against Aaron, and, and Aaron does what the bullies want, like Adam did what the bully wanted him to do, eat the forbidden fruit. And so the forbidden fruit in the, in the wilderness was this golden calf. And when that happened, what happens? God takes away the priesthood of the firstborn sons because they now no longer deserve it. They've broken the covenant. Now they get the curses. And so it's the Levites who wield the swords and defend God and defend his sanctuary. And so God says and sets up them as the the priesthood and takes away the share in the priesthood from the firstborn sons and gives it to the Levites. And as a result, the Levites now, when they enter into the promised land, they don't have a piece of land for themselves, unlike all the other tribes. No, their meros, their share, is in God himself. And each of the tribes have to share a little portion with these Levites. So it's a a fascinating look into the fall, once again, from grace and sort of this garden sanctuary priestly communion with God. And so Scott Hahn says again on page 46, quote, nevertheless, in the book of Judges, we see that the transition to an exclusive Levitical priesthood was bumpy. Once settled in the promised land, non-Levite families still preserved a domestic priesthood passed on from father to son. In chapter 17, we meet a man named Micah, who who consecrates his son as a priest for the purpose of worship in the family's shrine. When a Levite appears at the family's home, however, Micah pleads with him, quote, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, Judges 17.10. And a chapter later, Micah's plea is echoed almost verbatim by the Danites as they invite the Levite to be the priest for their entire tribe. Quote, come, come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. That's Judges 18.19. Pick up this book. Many are called by Dr. Hahn. It is a phenomenal read. But you can see, he's drawing on these Old Testament passages to show that it was clearly seen by the ancients that the priests were to be 
fathers. Why? Because their job was to lead the people to God the Father. God called his firstborn son out of Egypt, which leads us to believe that every other tribe on the planet was also a son of God. But God first consecrated his firstborn, making them what? A nation, a kingdom of priests, fathers to the rest of the people of the world. Why? So that they could bring in the other family, to bring back these wayward sons of God, back to God the Father. That was their purpose from the beginning. And so now, as we fast forward, we see that Jesus takes the old covenant priesthood and he perfects it in the new. Again, a subject we've gone into great depths on before. So you can search my website, catholichack.com, for uh, priesthood, and you'll find all kinds of uh, previous shows on this topic with far greater detail. But let's summarize very quickly. We see in the upper room how Jesus takes 12 new princes, and he sets them up and ordains them as priests. In fact, this is a, a reference to Exodus chapter 24, where Moses takes 12 princes, sets them up on 12 pillars, and they offer 12 sacrifices. He takes the blood from these 12 sacrifices. He sprinkles it on the altar and sprinkles it on the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus quotes from this in St. Luke's narrative of the institution of the Eucharist in the upper room. Why? Because these 12 men are priests. We even see in John's gospel how he washes the feet of the 12 and he has that little tit for tat with uh, St. Peter about, oh, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no meros in me. How does St. Peter understand his words? By saying, well, then not just my feet, but my head and my hands too. Why? Because in Leviticus 8, what does Moses do? But he washes Aaron and his sons, ordaining them as the priests and giving them the vestments of the priest, washing their head and their hands by the command of God. And so we see quite clearly this and many other references that these are priests. Now, there's one priest in particular, the chief steward who serves directly for the king in the king's kingdom. We saw this under King David, and now we see it under King Jesus. This role of prime minister, we have a new one. And we read about it in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, when our Lord tells St. Peter that he will be the rock upon which our Lord builds his church, and he will give to him the keys of the kingdom, etc., etc. Now, Jesus was quoting from a specific passage in Isaiah chapter 22 that describes the role of this chief steward, the Segen Hakohanin, the over the house in the Old Testament. To, to go rather quickly, we're going to pick up on Isaiah 22, starting around verse 19. Quote, I will thrust you from your office, and you will be cast down from your station. Notice it's an office. that The person may come and go, but the office is forever. Exactly like the, the, uh, the, the chair of Peter. Peter died, but another followed, and another followed, and another followed, until we get to Pope Benedict XVI. The person may come and go, but the office is forever. Moving on to verse 20 of Isaiah 22, quote, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your vestment, with your robe, and I will bind your girdle, as part of that priestly vestment, on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father 
to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. It's a phenomenal insight into the role that Jesus intended, drawing upon the Old Testament understanding of this chief steward, the over-the-house, the Sagan Hakohanin, who stood as second high priest in charge of all the other priests in the temple. This man was on deck once a year during Yom Kippur, when the high priest would offer up the bull sacrifice for his own personal sins, then offer up the lamb sacrifice for all the sins of the rest of the people. Notice the bull. Why? Aaron fashioned the golden calf. And so every high priest after him would have to offer up a bull to make up for Aaron. But after that sacrifice, the high priest got the opportunity just this once to go into the, in the inner sanctuary and offer up an incense offering to the very face of God to the very presence there in the Shekinah glory cloud over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the inner sanctuary. Now, if this man had any sins on him whatsoever, he would drop dead and they'd have to pull him out by the rope attached to him. And what would happen? The Sagan Hakohanin, the chief steward, his job was then to go in and make sure the sacrifice was offered, that the, sac the, that the liturgical practice was done according to the command because it was that serious. It was that important. And so he was always on deck, always ready to go. The Johnny on the spot, if you will, making sure that things went the way they were supposed to. And he was called to be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, Pope Benedict XVI, the successor of St. Peter. St. Peter was sent to Rome. And Rome was infested with the presence of Christ to the point where one day, through the blood of the martyrs, through the steady witness of the church, it would take possession of the kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. How do we know? How do we know that this is the correct way to understand this? Go read Daniel chapter 7 and you'll see there are four kingdoms that come that are prophesied. That last fourth kingdom was the kingdom of Rome. And what does Daniel say? That that kingdom will be given to the saints. What happens when Constantine finally legalizes the Christian religion, sets it up, gives them properties, and they start building basilicas and churches, and, and they start worshiping in the light of day instead of in the cover of darkness, in the catacombs? What happens? Constantine picks up and moves to Constantinople, leaving the Bishop of Rome in Rome. The kingdom, in a symbolic and a spiritual way, is given to the saints, under this new chief steward, this new over the house, this new Sagan Hakohanin, who, like the old one, was the father of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this new one is the father to the inhabitants of Rome, which is the heart of the church, infesting all the world with the love of Christ, the light that gets rid of all that darkness. It's almost as if God intended it, huh? So did Jesus mean that you aren't to call anyone father? I mean, did he mean that literally? I think we can say no. That's not how he meant it. I mean, he was speaking 
much more in a symbolic and a figurative way here. It becomes obvious because we see through Jesus' own understanding where he calls Abraham father and St. Stephen calls the Pharisees and the priests and the clergy father. We see St. Paul calling himself father, St. Peter calling himself father, St. John calling the elders fathers. Clearly, Jesus didn't mean it literally. That we see rather the beauty of what's going on here. That if Jesus has truly called out 12 new priests, consecrated them as priests, that we see that the understanding of the ancients was always that those priests are fathers, like Adam was a father to the human race. Instead of fathering them through disobedience, though, the new priesthood is given the command and the grace of God through the sacraments to father the people to heaven in truth, in spirit and truth, as Jesus says to the woman at the well in John's gospel. So the beauty and the depth here is that it's linked to the fatherhood in the priesthood. So it's just exactly opposite of our sort of literal 21st century Western mentality to look at scripture purely on the surface level instead of diving deep on the subject and realizing just how profound it really is. And let me tell you something. I'm a father. And if I don't lead my children to God, the Father in heaven, then I do not deserve whatsoever to ever be called father. But as long as I lead them to heaven, I fulfill the job, the very vocation God has given to me And I, of course, then get to participate in that fatherhood, even if it's just in a very small way. But like Adam, who was created both priest and father, leading his offspring to God, so are the priests of the church of the Lamb of God, called to sacrifice and lead the spiritual to God, to lead the faithful to God. Until next time, may God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground.